Welcome back to Bristol's Fashions, the Spectrum's premier source for what's looking good in the galaxy. I'm Bro Haxon, filling in for Shauna Bristol, who's out sampling the newest line of monocolored jumpsuits. She'll be back with a report next week. Today, we're talking about the newest ship to hit the market, the Banu Defender. With me today is Reginald Snootian, sales manager from Solarum Starships. Good day, Brill, and full disclosure for your audience, our lot is simply full to bursting with these beautiful craft, and I'm looking forward to selling one to each of your listeners. Very good. And to help us understand how to make this new haute couture hot rod street legal in the space lanes, from TTD Customs Processing, we have with us, um, uh, Operator 316-FU? Um, that's uh, stroke fu, not dash fu. Uh, right, right. Sorry, about but it's a, it's a common mistake. But they can make date entry a total nightmare with our punch card system. Okay, well, uh, operator. Yeah, yeah. You know, I sense some tension here. Some people get a little uncomfortable with formal titles. So if it did, if it helps make this a more authentic, low customs public relations experience for you, uh, please feel free to call me Sean. Oh, okay, Sean. Uh, thank you both. So, let's start with the obvious. Reg, this is a unique ship, designed with a foreign aesthetic in mind. How are people reacting when they see it for the first time? Brill, I can confidently say that no matter what your taste in starship design, the Defender is visually striking. The curves and contours devastatingly organic almost put you in mind of a luxury vehicle from Origin or Gutemaya. But then it's got just a hint of that jutting, thrusting aesthetic that sets it apart from other manufacturers. These qualities turn the Banu Defender from a fashion statement into a style conversation. We believe the design, well, it's it's a movement in and of itself. We're calling it artisanal Banu. Well, uh, excuse me, what? What? You're calling it what? Uh, th- thank you, Sean. Uh, I'll be with you in a moment for the regulatory concerns, but I just want to follow up with Reg here on the aesthetic. Right, right, okay. Uh, sure, let me let me stop you just there for a second. Uh, our office doesn't generally comment on the exterior configuration of most ships, unless, of course, it violates the excessive anatomical resemblance statute of 2874. But I have to ask this uh, sales jockey here where he gets off describing this ship as artisanal. Sales jockey. Brill, as your clerical help here, here should know. As long as the ship's silhouette complies with the ears law, we can legally use any adjective we want in describing the ship. Within those tasteful and refined boundaries, obviously, we consider the ship a work of art, Brill. And you know, art is... Meticulous. Meticulously defined in paragraph 4 of subsection 12 of the Ears Act, and it only applies to the process of creation as an experiential event in the observer slash participant. And I quote, Art is... Uh, precise. Uh, precisely why we've got you here. Sean, um, okay, uh, let's move on to the nitty-gritty of the uh, alternative registration tag, or art. Now, art is... Obsessive, obsessive compliance with nitpicking rules that cover the pedestrian ships from conventional dealers simply has no place in a discussion of the avant-garde in transport design. Mr. Paper Pusher here is simply too uh, uh, repressed to understand... The Defender truly is art, Brill, and art is... Anal. I beg your pardon? He was going to say anal. It's okay. TGD customs officers have heard it all. You know, one time these guys tried to smuggle in some pr- monkey and b- wheel 
health without filling out a form. Oh, really, Sean? Uh, that sort of language. I was simply saying that art is... Anal, go ahead, call me that to my face, Thales Jockey. It's all part of the experience. See here, you bureaucratic drone. I was saying art is... Anal. Art is... Anal. Art is... Anal. Uh, gentlemen, please. Uh, <clears throat> Sean, I I don't think Mr. Snootian was making any implications except about how great the ship looks. Quite right. It's clearly a stunning display of modern and exotic fluidity of concept, gracefully effervescing in an artisanal manner that... You guys just aren't getting it. You just can't slap an artisanal label on something. It's... It's not a brand or a slogan. It's the holistic concept that encompasses everything about an experience. The artisanal bureaucracy of the TDD Customs Bureau doesn't just put bespoke shades of mauve and taupe on forms and print them off in unique and practically unreadable fonts. That's just the beginning. We handcraft all of the quirky, offbeat, zany, anachronistic obstacles we throw in the way of progress. We ensure that all of the information is combined and processed in ways that harmonize the need for both collation and categorization without sacrificing the need for authenticity, genuineness, and an appropriate processing cue. That is the level of craftsmanship and attention to detail you need to justify calling something artisanal, sir. Wow. Um, any reply to that, Reg? Well, uh, we've already printed the glossy brochures. So. Oh, the glossy brochures. For Pete's sake, honestly. Look, our office will work with you to bring your user experience into compliance under the EARS Act and the Alternative Registration Tag, or ART, information system. We'll place the Defender under review and give you a tentative status. Uh, that sounds like a lot going on there, Sean. Uh, sure sounds complicated. Yeah, we do this sort of thing from time to time, but saying art information system analysis review tentative is sort of exhausting. So we just shorten it to artisanal retentative. Right, and uh, with that, we're going to need to take a break, folks. When we come back, the star kitten line. Fashionable fad, forging, a following, or putrescent pink plague punishing all who come across it. Keep it here on Bristol's Fashions. Check put me at the range point four. This is control. Be reasonable. Keep calm and remain on the guard frequency. Sits and sooths, captains and commanders, you're tuned to the guard frequency. And as all good pilots know, when you're out in the deep black, you want to keep one ear on the guard. This is episode 165 of the Best Damn Space Sim Podcast Ever and was recorded on Friday, April 21st and made available for download Tuesday, April 25th over at GuardFrequency.com. I'm Ken Shadow. I'm Ostron. And I'm Jeff. And as always, we have Henry in the audio booth. So what do we have in store this week, Jeff? In this week's Squawk Box, NASA is taking a dive and we're not talking about their budget. Next, we hit the flight deck and see what news from your favorite space sims has landed as we cover. It's all about Banu in Star Citizen and bug fixes, multi-crew updates, and details on the, quote, premonition tie-in event in Elite Dangerous. Finally, we tune into the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. 
That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on with the show and see what's coming through the Squawk Box. Hey, you boys, need a carrier out here? Uh, everything's under control. Crypter, 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 this is Jeff saying welcome to the Squawk Box, everyone. Those of you who follow space exploration news will be familiar with Cassini, the probe that has been studying Saturn and its moons since 2004. Now, the probe has almost run out of fuel, so the day after this recording, NASA is going to begin the final phase of its mission. On April 22nd, Cassini will make its last close pass of Titan and begin its final descent into Saturn. The plan is to have the probe use Titan's gravity to propel it through the gap in Saturn's rings, putting it into the gap between the planet itself and the ring system dubbed the grand finale, Cassini will have 22 orbits to study Saturn's atmosphere. The apparently empty space between the planet and the rings, as well as the inner part of Saturn's D-ring. Scientists are, are hopeful that the mission will provide information that can explain such phenomenon as the hexagonal etchings near the planet's north pole, and possibly the layer inside Saturn that is either spinning at a different speed than the rest of the planet, or maintaining a different shape. There is a danger that the passage through the rings could cause damage, possibly fatal, to the probe due to debris collisions. But NASA is trying to alter the insertion profile to minimize that chance. Still, even if the probe suffers catastrophic damage, the mission itself has provided a wealth of information on Saturn's rings, moons, and the planet itself. So, I think this is the first probe that they've actually sent this close to Saturn, right? Well, I remember back in 2004 when this thing went up and found it fascinating then, but you know, so many things have happened in the space game since then that I almost forgot about that, but th this is kind of uh, like brings this all to the forefront. So this is like one of the first probes that really started to explore our, our inner space, our solar system, so to speak. The probe out to Pluto was didn't stop along the way really to make much of a it was it was already going out there and there were no planets it could pass by with right any. uh so this is uh fascinating to you know think that what's gravitation like on the rings can we mine those things someday you know what's the moons like are i mean is there more to them than just what we see through the telescope uh what's the spectral analysis what's you know all that kind of stuff so this is really really cool data I think will can be coming from this. Yeah, it already um, sent back a whole wealth of information on the different moon. Like it found the ice geysers on the moon with an E that I know how to spell, but I couldn't pronounce. Enceladus. Yeah, right. Uh, like yeah. Um, yep. I don't like. I said I'm not sure how to pronounce it. I've only ever read it. Yeah, the the, um, the Saturn satellites are about the second most interesting in the entire system. So. I mean, there's a lot of really cool stuff there. It has like 50 or something? It has a lot of them, although it's sort of like a mini version of the dwarf planet debate because people are constantly debating as to whether something's a moon or just a piece of the ring system that got flung out and is still orbiting the planet briefly. But the, the really cool thing is they're, the part of the reason they're shooting the probe into Saturn is that they don't want to risk contaminating any of the moons because some of the moons have criteria that could possibly allow life to develop and they don't want any of the terrestrial microbes to get on there. Oh, that's a good plan. 
and I, I don't know why there's still a debate on what, what's a moon, because, you know, if it's spherical and orbiting a planet, it's a moon. <laughs> you know, plain and simple. Well, Jeff, I mean, there, surely there's a size Okay, a kilometer, a kilometer diameter, I don't know, two, 10 kilometers. Um, well, that's exactly the problem. What's the number? Yeah. yeah I don't care. I'd call it a moon. <laughs> you'd make a, you'd make a great astronomer. All right. Well, um, I suppose that's as definitive we can get. So we'll uh, we'll wrap it up there. <laughs> Red seen or heard something you might find interesting to others listening on the spectrum? Send an email to squawk at guardfrequency dot com. But for now, let's see what news has hit the flight deck. Three one seven five Port Bay hands on approach checker screen call the ball. Don't get technical with me. In Star Citizen news, we'll be digging into the Banu. But before that, the Austin studio gave us an overview of what they'll be doing lately. The developers progressed in working on implementing heat sinks and heat signatures on ships, as well as a system for linking control of various components to different control stations. On the ship front, the Anvil Terrapin is in gray box now, and the Aurora update is past polishing and into fine detail work. Also, the Heavy Marine is apparently ready for combat and has been labeled the most complex character to date. The heavy outlaw is not far behind. Presumably, he just has to finish a few more treats from Big Benny's. Though it was covered at the end of the show, the other new event happening is a referral contest. From now until August 8th, anyone who gets a referral point for bringing another backer into Star Citizen gets an in-game Star Kitten t-shirt, apparently the first in a new in-game product line. Also, anyone who earns 10 referral points will get a Star Kitten skinned pink dragonfly. We are 100% not making any of this up. They also up the stakes for those who are Star Citizen Evangelizers. The first person to achieve a referral point goal of 2,942 points will get a free trip to Gamescom for one, including airfare, hotel stay, and the usual meet and greets. Also, the person who achieves the highest overall total points by the end of the contest will also receive an Idris M. Well... What do you think about them kittens? I mean, cookies, or I mean, whatever. Well, they also they also added a whole bunch of tiers to the baseline stuff too. I don't know if you guys saw that. At seventy-five points, you get a misc razor. At a hundred points, you get a Vandal blade. At two hundred points, you get a Vandal glaive. At five hundred points, you get a anvil ship package that includes a terrapin and a hurricane. At 1,042, you get the million-mile high club access, but that was already there in the original one. And at, with 217 points, you get a Aegis Javelin Destroyer, which is that $3,000 spaceship. So, yeah, they've really, I mean, in that and on top of the, the contest that's going on, too, they've really upped the, the ante on people doing this referrals. Of course... Any normal peasant like us probably has no chance of getting any of these referrals because that is an insane amount of people that you would get talked into the game. But there are people that are already on the leaderboards. It seems like it's mostly a system that would benefit streamers who can get a following. Why can't organizations get behind this? I mean, Guard Frequency and our podcast, we should, you know, have a referral number and get all our listeners to refer us and then... You know, those ships could go to the uh, corporate, uh, you know, ship line. Yeah, but it only it only makes sense of people that are that are coming into the game, right? I don't. I'm not sure how many listeners we have out there that 
could be talked into buying Star Citizen at this point. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You got a point. So, Ostron, you're right. There are a lot of like YouTubers and streamers that are kind of talking people in. Uh, AlphaCast is one of the is like a French streamer, I think, and he has uh, 1,423 points. Uh, STL Youngblood is a is a uh, popular YouTuber. He has a thousand points, but there's also a bunch of people that aren't. I don't think are either one of those things, and I don't know where they're getting their points from. Like, there's a guy named Weatherby that's got uh, 1,100 at the moment, and there's a guy named Jeff J Feezy that has almost 1,500 points. He's the top runner right now. So these, this is just... They're all fake. They, They're that, all fake accounts. A thousand fake accounts. I mean, if the guy's spending $50,000 and buying his own points, then more power to him, I guess. <laughs> there were probably... Easy, I mean, he could just give them the money and probably get similar... Are these actual backers that you have to get these points yeah, these, from? Yeah, this has yes. to be somebody that ponies up money. It can't just be a registration to the Spectrum. Yeah, they have to spend forty dollars because I've I, I've had people I've had people I've referred and then they bought like an on sale account for twenty five bucks or something like that and I don't get the credit for it. They're just perpetually in the perspective stage because they don't have a forty dollar a forty dollar credit on their account even though they have the game. So yeah, it ha- there's a minimum buy amount for you to get it to. And a lot of people were also mad that, so they announced this during ATV, and as part of the announcement, they got a lot of these top guys to be on ATV and talk about how they liked the referral system and how they liked Star Citizen, and they put their their referral codes right below them on ATV. And uh, there were a lot of people on Reddit crying foul that, you know, basically you're disadvantaging anybody that wasn't on that show that had their referral. Oh my God. Are they seriously did that? Yeah. I don't know how many people watch ATV that don't already have star citizens. So I'm not sure it actually is that uh, well, big of a deal. But, but if you're a YouTuber or something, say, look, I see, look at here. I am in, uh, on, you know, star citizen. And it's like, yeah, no, it's certainly, a, there's certainly amount of cred there. That's a certain disadvantage right there. Yeah. No, yeah, I, I don't know how much, I mean, I don't know how much practical advantage it translates to. Cause like you said, most of the people who would see them on ATV are probably already backers anyway, but it doesn't look good. Um, no, it doesn't. It's a bad of, PR thing. Yeah. The, the other, the other thing people are really complaining about is, with the exception of the uh, the T-shirts and the Dragonfly, all the other rewards are really high-level stuff. It's like thousands of things. I think the only other reward that they added that isn't in the that level was the 75-point reward. So for anybody that's kind of on the fence about recruiting people, this really did nothing. You know, if you're... If you want to get one guy, then you get like an in-game T-shirt nobody really cares about. If you have none at all, then sure, you get... You could get a Gladius and a because you already got a Gladius before if you got ten referrals, and you get now you get a, a Dragonfly, which is cool even though it's pink. So I mean that that makes sense for people that have none at all. But for anybody that say say like I'm at ten right now, the next thing up from the ten is the other ten I would have to get to get the Dragonfly, and then past that it's a bunch of ships you get only access to an Arena Commander. There's really low incentive for me to go out and recruit a bunch of people at this point because there's just not very much. A granularity and the advantage there. Now, if I have a friend that really wants to get it, sure, I'll give him my code. But I'm not going to put a bunch of work into you know advertising just for the for the contest itself. The translated cost doesn't seem to match up at all. Because if you think like you said, ten people, that's ten people that have to spend a minimum of forty. That's four hundred bucks you're putting in CIG's pocket. Now, obviously, I don't think 
you should expect, you know, direct translation of like monetary support into star citizen goods, but there's a serious disparity between the amount of money you bring in for them and the amount of reward you get back. Oh yeah, just think about what 2,912 accounts are, are, you know, and you get an Idris? No, no, 2,900 is for the trip to Gamescom. Oh, uh, trip to Gamescom. Well, that that, that could translate well. Yeah. Well, that's uh, (laughs) $120,000. Something like that. The only other minor thing I was sort of confused about is the fact that they separated the first person to get to 2942 and then the highest overall total points. I'm just trying to figure what is the actual likelihood that there's going to be some sort of a race to the end. Because I'm thinking whoever gets to 2942 is probably going to end up being the overall winner. There are some advantages in making it a race because the people that would necessarily be doing this are probably big promoters and uh, YouTubers and streamers. They'll probably be doing events on their channel to try and make it past that finish line, either at the finish lines, really. And from start from Sig's point of view, that just means more free advertising from, I mean, it, it's, they're got sunk cost anyway, but they'll have multiple people pushing this really hard. At the same time, from the community's point of view, I, I suspect that a lot of these guys are going to do a bunch of give, giveaways. They're already doing giveaways anyway. They're already pumping money into the project yeah. as it is. So I expect them to be uh, potentially just buying these referrals themselves just so they could get, then give away the ships afterwards. Because once the money's spent on an account, then it doesn't have to stay on the account for any time. It's just there. And then uh, they can give, they're free to give away at that ship at that point. Or they could, uh, you know, be giving away other, doing other things in order to promote at the same time, which could also be good for other backers. So it's not necessarily bad, but it's really, this whole thing is structured around that people that already have PR outlets, you know, YouTubers, streamers, whoever the case, podcast people, that, that there are people that already set up that have an audience and to bring their audience in. It's really what they what they probably really want is people that aren't currently doing stuff with Star Citizen to get on board with this and try and start going for these goals because those are the people that would get the most bang out of the buck because they'd be bringing in potentially thousands of people out of uh, communities that aren't already in Star Citizen um, and they but they would do, the streamer would be doing it um, for these rewards in Star Citizen. Our first Star Citizen community question: What's your opinion of the referral contest? Are you going to make an extra effort to recruit some friends? Tell us what you think through the usual channels. Details to follow. Apart from the other business, most of this week's news was about the Banu. Up to now, all we've been told is the Banu are heavily focused on trading, they don't really have a central government, and they use really, really big merchantmen ships as trading vessels. Will Weisbaum and Dave Haddock dug into the lore of the Banu and gave us a better picture of their society and culture. The inspiration for most of the Banu culture was based on Persia, particularly the idea of nomadic traders and caravans. In-game, the Banu are very practical in their attitudes towards stuff. They really don't focus on how old a thing is, who invented it, or its cultural significance. They just want to know if it works. They are also very materialistic. Their importance and wealth is always on display, and traveling Banu will move in with all of their possessions wherever they are going. This is held up as part of the reason for the merchantman size. The Banu individuals were shown several times on screen. They have long faces with lots of wrinkles and deep grooves. That is a feature they wanted to keep, even though the original implementation caused the Banu to have somewhat of a frightening appearance. 
there were a few different skin tones on display, and one of the artists mentioned they were using the Banu as an opportunity to introduce more color into the Star Citizen universe. The Banu clothing is going to be quite varied, and somewhat wild, as they collect samples of styles from all the places they've seen. Despite the varied clothing, however, the Banu as individuals are specialists. Merchants will have trained their whole life to be merchants, and will have very little experience in other professions. Same for military Banu, explorers, etc. Of course, what better way to drum up interest in a race than to release a new concept ship from that race? The Defender is the primary escort ship used by the Banu to protect their larger merchant ships. For those who can't pull up pictures right away, if you've seen the U-Wing craft that was featured in Star Wars Rogue One, you'll have a decent idea of the general look of the ship although the Defender is much rounder and has two ball canopy cockpits. The Banu version of the craft always has two crew, one pilot and one gunner or engineer, in keeping with the Banu's everyone is a specialist philosophy. The human version of the craft allows one pilot to control everything with the option for the co-pilot to man the guns. And if this ship's specs are to be believed, this ship is packing a decent number of them. Six size three mounts, four of them on gimbals. However, one might hope that the specs on the ship are not accurate when considering the rest of the equipment. Currently, the numbers say it's got one quarter of the power, half the engine power, less maneuverability, and pitiful shields as compared to the Cutlass, which is comparable in size. CIG have indicated that the ship's specs need an overhaul, which hasn't happened yet. I'd expect a reiteration of that announcement pretty soon, or they may have a tough time with this sale. The sale itself is going on until May 1st, which is the Monday after this show airs. Given the lackluster specs rolled out, the price isn't likely to excite many people either. $170 if you're dropping real cash, and this is a concept sale, so the markup for melting and using credit applies. In keeping with the apparent Banu excitement, the Merchantman is also on sale for $300 cash or $350 credit or you can pick up both ships together and get a $20 discount either way. One quick note here, if you have a Banu Merchantman already, check your mail, because I think they're sending out a uh, $7 coupon for the Defender if you already have a Merchantman. A s exclusive $7 discount on the Defender and Defender Warbond SKUs. So it sounds like kind of a neat ship concept. So they said the shields are supposed to be super strong in the uh, live stream. So yeah, I mean, what I got when the sale came out is apparently you have to take everything from the live stream at its word and totally ignore the specs because the specs that they posted for this ship are horrific. <laughs> like it is like like I said in the description, if you compare this to the Cutlass, which is roughly the same size and more or less the same sort of mission profile overall, although this is supposed to be geared more toward combat. It's better armed, but every other aspect of the ship is inferior by like an order of magnitude. Oh man, I, I could take my Aurora out and... and uh, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I don't... I mean, I like the concept. The, the whole dual pilot thing uh, makes me think of the Cloud City fighters and stuff. That was actually the same thing that popped into my head when I was reading about the different roles was the, the Cloud City pod fighters. And, and honestly, I think it's a better configuration for like a dual seater than some of the other ships, meaning that like 
I can see like a guy getting into like the back seat of a Super Hornet and getting kind of bored, or like the guy or, or some guy getting in the back seat of a Cutlass. But in in this, they had this the second guy has, still has a up in front point of view. Right. Yeah. The other thing I liked is that they apparently decoupled the ejection systems. So theoretically, if one pilot panics and the other guy still wants to give it a go, like one guy can eject and the other guy can go, well, no, screw you. I'm going to keep going here. <laughs> I wonder if that's true for, for blackouts and stuff, too. If one guy has like a better spacesuit than the other guy and doesn't black out as soon, if he can take over when the other guy blacks out. <laughs> that would be interesting gameplay to explore. The, uh, the only thing that I... I really didn't like about the ship was that the the U-wing looks like it would block off a lot of that nice cockpit view. Like it would have, it, it almost seemed like it would have an Aurora almost like cockpit, but your left and right have these giant arm things in front of them. Uh, what that actually looks like from the cockpit, I, I'm guessing you're yeah, going to have to tweak a bit. It's hard to tell from the images, but my guess is they might design the cockpit because the in the pictures, when the wings are deployed front in flight mode, it looks like they're canted downward slightly. So it might be that the position of the ball cockpit raises you just above where they would block off the sight. Mm-hmm. I mean, that would be. Then you'd get something similar to the normal fighter, I guess, in that case. Yeah. I mean, it's. I'm, I'm looking at the hollow viewer now, and about half of the canopy is above the edge of the wings when they're deployed so it looks like you'd you'd at least be able to look out that side and the wing wouldn't block your view it would block your view if you were trying to look out that side and down Mm -hmm. but also i mean depending on which side you're sitting on your view toward the center of the ship is completely shut because you're either looking at an empty cockpit or you're waving at your co-pilot. So you don't have full 360 view out of this cockpit regardless. Right. It definitely it definitely looks like it's better armed and then, and better better for a combat ship than the Xi'an Scout, which is a similar price point as well. Yeah, this this seems to be designed more with combat in mind whereas the Scout seem to be sort of half combat, half recon. Yeah. Do we want to talk about the Banu themselves at all? Looking at them as a merchant race is what I was expecting to be, so I was thinking kind of a Ferengi trip, but it looks like they're going to be deeper than that. Well, there is a lot of Ferengi there, because they said that basically like all of the Banu's importance is basically on display by just they lay out their goods and say, hey, look at me, I have all this stuff. Yeah, but I don't need to deal with the rules of acquisition or the attitude. Uh, I just hope it isn't like that. <laughs> yeah, it yeah, sounds like they're, again, they're kind of a no-nonsense kind of people, but it sounds from the other lore that they've put out that they're supposed to be pretty highly spiritual at the same time, which is not very Ferengi. No, these guys remind me more of the of the merchants traveling the Silk Road, you know, uh, with all their uh, opulence. and Which which is apparently what the the writers drew from. They said in the interviews that they were looking primarily at Persia and the caravan traders that would go along the Silk Road. Yeah, I like the uh, the costuming that they came out with. I thought that was all very um, interesting from a point of view of seeing those kinds of things in game. They uh, they obviously seem a lot more alien than the the costuming that you get on the humans, and I think it'll give a lot more flair to the 
you'll know when you're in a Banu area. Both both the ship design and the, like I said, the costuming, both together work really well in kind of illustrating a very different feel from the rest of the game. One other tidbit that I, got, I saw that uh, David Haddock mentioned is he was kind of telling all of the influences from the original races, and some of them we've known for a long time. So, for instance, the Vanduuls are, are based in Visigoths, you know, Earth is based on the Roman Empire, the Xi'an is our obviously you know, Chinese slash uh, generic Asian descent, and the Persians were the uh, Banu. But the, the one that he mentioned that I, I totally didn't get before now was the Tavarin are actually supposed to be Japanese-based, because I, I assumed that they were supposed to be something closer to the European side because of the um, Roman Empire motif, but they're supposed to be Japan, or feudal Japan, which from the allegory side didn't make any sense to me, but it's it, it's an interesting uh, insight into the basis of the Tavarin. Our second Star Citizen community question of the night is, do you like the lore that CIG revealed for the Banu? Are you going to be shelling out for a defender? We're eager to hear your position, so let us know what it is through your usual channels. Details to come. Frontier took to the forums this week with several updates planned to relieve some of the issues and concerns discussed here and elsewhere since the release of Update 2.3 for Elite Dangerous. First, a number of bugs will be addressed in the 2.3.01 update, including the Galaxy Map, Packhound Missile, Multicrew, Xbox Menu, Friends list lag fixes, and others affecting stability and performance. Initially, this was slated to be coming in early May, but a subsequent post confirmed that it is now on track for Tuesday the 25th for PC and Mac Commanders, which is the same time this episode is released. Unfortunately, Xbox users will have to wait a couple more weeks, according to Community Manager Ed Lewis. Next, a server-side update in the next few working days will increase multi-crew payouts, and rebuy cost reduction percentages, boosting the rebuy per crew member to a 30% discount and upping the payout for commander of the same or higher rank as the helm to 80% from 50%, and proportionally improving rewards for commanders of lower ranks. Additionally, helm safety measures will receive some customization options in the 2.3.1 update coming later. Included in the new options are allowing Helm to toggle limited access for gunners, which will restrict them to weapons only, not utilities, and allow only the Helm to retract and deploy hardpoints. The other safety change adds a toggle for the availability of fighter cons so that fighters cannot be launched if the Helm disables the feature. Lead designer Sandro Samarco also teased upcoming improvements to the crime and punishment systems in Elite, commenting that their intentions are not to change the central concepts of what is and what is not a crime in Elite, but improving the consequences when crimes are committed. He noted that he hopes to be able to discuss this in more detail soon. All these systems updates aside, the headline feature for this week's newsletter was something completely different. A new megaship has been found as the culmination of a mystery in the Formidine Rift, and along with it, a series of sinister-sounding data logs. We'll include the video link in the show notes, but won't spoil too much for those who want to seek it out in-game. Just a note that it may tie into the other big lore event coming on the 29th, when the ending of Drew Wagger's new official elite novel, Premonition, will be decided by player interaction. So, Henry, do you have any further information about the, um, the tie-in event? 
Yeah, actually, I just watched uh, an interview with Drew Wagger on YouTube. He was on Obsidian Ants channel, and he was talking about how that's going to tie directly into the Formidium Rift mystery. My concern was with the ship having been discovered before the event that it was a part of the event, and that if that was discovered ahead of time, was that going to mess up the event in some way? But apparently there's more to discover than just the ship that's been found. And the event is actually going to... Uh, you know, what, what happens in the event, he's planning to use that in the book. So even if his main characters are killed, he's still going to use that in the book. Uh, so right now, community or the player community is uh, either going to be defending them and their mission during the event, or they're going to be trying to attack them. So it should be really interesting to see how it goes down. So there's going to be there's going to be ships flying around with characters that could be in his book. Absolutely. And that they could possibly die as part of this one-time event? Yes. And their defense to the, the idea that, you know, Elite is a PvP playground and there's a lot of griefers that are going to want to get out there and, and ruin this event, their defense to that is we've been practicing PvP. So they're going into this planning to use the same kind of evasive maneuvers that we would to get out of fights or to avoid fights in super crews. They're not going in there with any kind of, like, script armor on from Frontier. I see, so. I see. So this, these are these are all, these character ships are all going to be piloted by real people. Yeah, I think it's crazy. Honestly, I'm, I'm curious to see what actually happens. I think the worst that could happen is they're all just massacred very quickly because they are doing this in open mode. They're not doing this in a protected private group in solo or something. They're doing this in open, so... Anybody can go there and get involved. How are they preventing the whole area getting flooded with people? Well, it is instanced, so there will only be so many people there. Um, in fact, they're breaking yeah, so it up. Yeah, so you only get like, uh, what, a dozen people that get to see it? Well, there will be events happening across multiple instances. Different characters will be in different instances, and I think they're having different characters in the event for Xbox and than they are for a PC. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's very strange, but he's got it all kind of put together, and you'll have to kind of read the book to understand it all. So if you're planning to do that, you know, to, to participate in that event, the book is going to fill in all the holes and why those people are there and all that. So it'll be, it'll be interesting. He's going to write another book that, that tells who died and stuff? Yeah, the events that happen here will affect the, the way the book is finished. He's, he's, they're finishing the book now. So basically the book is like three quarters or however much written already, and this just fills in the culminating plot points. Right. Right, and there is a book out already. It came out. Uh, he, this this writer, uh, Mr. Wagger, was uh, one of the Kickstarter writers, one of the fiction writers when they were doing Kickstarter. So there's already a book there. Have you read his work already? I haven't read it, but I'm not much for you know like in-game fiction. I, I pretty much stick to what's happening in the game. But that's kind of you know that's that's an interesting thing to say in Elite because it's so tightly tied to what's happening in game. So. You know, participating in the event, and I'm going to want to read the book that's coming out about the event, so I'll need to pick up that first book, too. Yeah. It's definitely a risk, though. I mean, oh, yeah. as, as, Bo as Bodie McBoatface taught us, leaving anything up to the whims of the internet is almost asking to be kicked in the teeth. Absolutely. The, co the whole concept of allowing players to basically write the end of your book sounds like a good formula for creating a... Uh, disappointing plot points. Could you know be. I mean? I mean, what happens when I all die? I mean, that, that's a depressing book, isn't it? It absolutely could be. He addressed that in his interview. He said if that happens, there may be other characters that have to like pick up the mantle of whatever mission 
but one thing that he said wouldn't happen is that the characters that have the information to be revealed wouldn't be lost and the information wouldn't come out. We're going to get a reveal. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. It's going to be good from a lore standpoint, but also as a, a community event standpoint. I know Tony, our, our Tony Hunter um, from Guard Frequency is planning to be there. I'm planning to be there, hopefully in multi-crew. That'd be cool. We'll see. Speaking of multi-crew, what do you think about the adjustments they're making? You know, as far as multi-crew goes for me, it's awesome that explorers can join in on action now, but they made every single person who was looking at multi-crew as an upcoming feature very happy when they said everybody's going to get the same rewards. And they made us even happier when they said it's going to be the same for wings. And then they changed that and made it horrible with the split they have now based on rank, and they haven't fixed that. That's the thing that's making everyone mad. It's not even how that split's happening, it's that it's split in the first place. We're all participating in the mission. The game is, you know, it might have RPG elements, but it's a Twitch-based, skill-based simulator. So I'm playing it's me, you know, it's me. It's not my character who is low level and earns less money for this. His stats aren't applied to my shots, you know, it's it's... I don't think this kind of leveling has a place in Elite. I just don't feel like it does. Yeah, I don't get the fear of power leveling either. No, not in a game like Elite, where there's always more to buy, there's always more to do. And most of the challenges, like you said, are skill-based, so it's not like you can go out and buy the biggest, baddest ship and be able to just walk over whatever you're doing. If you can't aim, you're still going to be screwed, regardless of whether you're in a ship that costs 10 or 10 million space bucks. Yeah, and, you know, basing the payout on the rank is just keeping players that aren't really combat players from getting into combat anyway. Because what's the point? What's the incentive? I don't know. It just doesn't make sense to me. I am, however, interested in the crime and punishment changes they're talking about. That could be interesting. They're talking about not changing core gameplay or discouraging piracy or anything like that, but it seems like we are looking at harsher punishments for lawbreakers like assaulting other players and civilized systems and things like that so that could be cool you know i think that'd be a good positive change if pirates are less likely to come into civilized space it solves a whole lot of problems we have with griefers because you're gonna have safe places to go if you're not interested in that kind of gameplay but if you want to take a chance and you want to go out and experience living on the edge you can go to the anarchy systems and, and get into fights and Maybe lose your shit, maybe learn how to fight, maybe be a pirate yourself. You know, it opens up some things. So we'll see. Is it is it really a, a problem with, with the private groups and the solo play and everything like that? I mean, I, I, I would think that anybody that doesn't want to do PvP just doesn't do it. That's true, but then they're missing out on the multiplayer aspect of the game. And that really is something. Like, I'm a part of a few uh, private groups, and coming across other players in-game is fantastic. When you play in solo mode, you don't have any of that. You're just dealing with NPCs. When you play in open, coming across other players in any situation is, you know, you don't know what their intentions are. There's tension there. It may be something that you are into. You might, you might want to do PvP. You might be, you know, into that. But if you're not and you're just intimidated every time you undock, it's not a fun gameplay experience for you. So, you know, doing it this way, if there are systems you can go to that are going to be safer... And then there are places that are going to be more dangerous. It's just more realistic. And it gives us a, a chance to experience multiplayer without having to break up the community base into these private groups like Mobius that will never experience open. 
Our Elite Dangerous community question, do the coming changes do enough to make multi-crew a worthwhile experience? What's your take on the player participation lore event? Take yourself to our communication channels and let us know. Details coming up after feedback. Now it's time for news we didn't use. I know they are finishing up integrating their new netcode for Infinity Battlescape, and then it's full steam ahead to Alpha. Asus have partnered with Rockfish Games to bring us the Everspace bundle. If you buy an Asus graphics card and motherboard combo, you'll get a free Everspace Steam key. Links are in the show notes. Talking of Everspace, they've announced the official release date as May 26th. If you're a console gamer and fancy picking up Elite Dangerous, the Commander Deluxe Edition is currently 33% off on the Xbox One, thanks to Xbox Deals with Gold April 2017. I saw that my Xbox Gold and laughed. I am kind of looking forward to the Everspace release. I've been playing around with it since their latest updates, and I'm curious to see what the story elements are, because that's basically the only major thing that's not in that game yet. Me as well. I I played a little bit with it uh, last week, and uh, I had some good fun with it, and so I'm looking to see what they do with the release. Now that we're all caught up with the latest news, let's tune in the feedback loop and let you join in on the conversation. Okay, buddy, what's on your mind? Some say he clams up at the mention of chowder, and that he smokes a whole pack of kippers for breakfast. But all we know is he's called the Shiv. And he helped put together this week's feedback. A recap of last week's community questions. For Star Citizen, what do you think of the Javelin? Did that avatar in fact have the Mark Hamill-based facial features? And our Elite Dangerous community question. So what do you think was the reason for all the bugs? And are you enjoying the new features that do work? Sean Newboy writes in and says, Wonderful show. Love the Javelin. There's another big difference between the old and new Battlestar Galacticas. In the old one, the Cylons were the remnants of an alien civilization, not the human-designed robots. By your command. Ken from Chicago writes in and says, Great show! And Kinetic Impulsor did a fantastic Drexler interview. For those who don't know, that's Tony's handle for most of his online experiences. My thoughts on the Javelin? I have quibbles on how they remove the cockpit crossbeams. I wished it were smoother. Finally, sorry, Henry. I can't believe Kinshadow betrayed me. We follow Ken's. Sure, he spells it with an I, not an E, but come on. And Dillick Firehawk says, Guys, guys, know your capital ships. The RSI Polaris is a Corvette. The Aegis Idris is a Corvette. But it was enlarged and upgraded to a frigate. And the Aegis Javelin is a destroyer. The RSI Bengal class are carriers with all the tropes that encompass the space carriers. And that we are a retribution class super dreadnought. Okay. Thank you for that. Did you guys get it wrong last time? We were just speculating because I didn't have the, I didn't have the ship. Um, I have a ship comparison chart up, buried somewhere deep from the old early days, and and I didn't, ha- I couldn't find it. So we were just. Speculating. I asked Lennon when this came through, and he didn't remember us specifically messing up the classes of the ships, but it's certainly possible it happened at some point. 
Well, you guys can blame me because I would have corrected you if I was on the show. All right. That's policy now. Blame Kin Shadow. Unless Tony's It's around. easy. All right. Splice Point says, I wanted to share my two cents on the new ED patch. This is the first major patch since Before Horizons that brought me back to Elite. My buddy and I are both fans of space sims and possibly of playing multi-crew enticed us back for the first time in a long time. I realize it has its kinks, and I'm happy with the recent news that Frontier is buffing payouts. But, to be honest, we'd be playing it even if the payouts remained weak. Playing games together is fun, and multi-crew, even somewhat gimpy multi-crew, is a massive feature for me, and one that will have me pour a couple of dozen more hours into this game. Glad to see the guard is pushing on forward as usual. As an aside, a few buddies and I, including Danimal, have launched a new podcast which is less focused on Star Citizen and broader in scope. It is called SideQuest Games. SideQuest releases every two weeks with the premise that we pick a game as a group, play it, and then get together and talk about it. We've released three episodes so far, and we'll be releasing episode four at the end of April. We generally release on the 15th and 30th. Well, good luck to you guys, and welcome to the podcast family. Ditto. In general feedback... Uh, the only one we had was Allo Brains, who said, I've listened to these before, so looking forward to it. Thanks again. I think the, the multi-crew stuff sounds interesting regardless, and I'll definitely try it out regardless of the payout. Henry's point, though, that they're kind of stiffing you is, I think it's a bigger deal for a longer-term viability of it, rather than people trying it out, like you said, for the first dozen hours or whatever. Um, but long-term keeping its viability and convincing people to go multi-crew versus whatever the other option would be in, you know, wings, or even just flying totally separately and doing their own thing. If they can't make the same per hour, then sometimes it's hard to talk people into it. But no, I get the point that it, it's fun either way. And good luck on your podcast. And this week's community questions. What is your opinion on the referral contest? Are you going to make an extra effort to recruit some friends? Do you like the lore that Sig revealed for the Banu? Are you going to be shelling out for a defender? And in Elite Dangerous, do the coming changes do enough to make multi-crew a worthwhile experience? What's your take on the player participation lore event? Drop us an email, a tweet, or a comment on our show's post, which you will find on our website and over on our Facebook page. So, how was the show? Are you eager to jump on the ship, or are the specs too lackluster to be worth it? Either way, let us know. Here's how you can get in touch with us. Why not leave us a comment on this show's post over at GuardFrequency.com. Or hit us up on Twitter at GuardFreak, or leave a comment and like us on Facebook at Facebook.com forward slash GuardFreak. You can also use the contact form on our website, and all the details for all the ways you can get in touch with us can be found in the show notes. Your feedback is an important part of what we do, so take a minute and tell us what's on your mind. And that brings us to the end of episode 165 of Guard Frequency. We'll be back with episode 166 on May 2nd, so be sure to keep an eye out for our shows over at GuardFrequency.com. But that's not all. You can also subscribe to our shows at feeds.guardfrequency.com or by searching for us on iTunes. And if you're not doing anything Friday nights, then you should come and join us at 10 p.m. Central as we record Guard Frequency live over at twitch.tv forward slash guardfreak. Do you like what we do? Want to help us make the best damn space sim podcast ever? Drop us an email to squawk at guardfrequency.com. That's S-Q-U-A-W-K at guardfrequency.com. And you can also support the show by visiting our website, clicking on the Patreon logo, and becoming a regular subscriber. 
For just $1.25 a week, you'll get access to the raw recordings of our live shows, some guard frequency goodies, and an invitation to our private Elite Dangerous flight group. We want to thank all of our Patreons who support us with their subscriptions week on week and hope you'll consider making a regular contribution because the more support we get, the better show we can make. Are you looking for a friendly wingman or two? We're active in most space sims and would love to have you join us. Check out our website and look under the call sign section for details of how you can fly with us. And don't forget about our sister production, Priority One. They cover all things Star Trek, from the TV series to the MMO, the novels, the movies, and everything in between. Be sure to check them out at PriorityOnePodcast.com. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community manager, Justin Chivalry Bean Lomaster, our artists, Ben Sanders and Simon Charlton Edwards, our staff writer, Jace Pintad, and of course, our excellent audio engineer, Mikey. Thanks to our syndication partner, The Bass, and special thanks to Ronald Jinkies for his permission to use his music in our show. Visit ronaldjinkies.com for more of his work. But above all, we especially want to thank you folks for tuning in. If no one's listening out there, the deep black gets pretty lonely. Reduce thrust. That takes care of the housekeeping, so let's get on with the show and see what's coming through the squat box. The what? The yeah, what? I think I said the squack box. That's 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 the Boston pronunciation. No, I live in Boston. It's not. <laughs> the Banu clothing is going to be very, very varied. The Banu clothing is going to be quite varied and somewhat. Mo- I'm good. I can keep talking all day. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Shut up, Henry. <laughs> Next, a server-side update and a in the blah. Some say clams up at the mention of cham 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 cham. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One na- Network. Damn it! We- Network. Network. Wait, wait. <laughs> Did you We'd say like wet work? Craft work. We'd like to thank the entire team at Guard Frequency and the Priority One Network. Thanks to our community... Why can't I talk tonight? The thing that amuses me the most is that you never seem to have problems with the custom parts of the copy that change every week, but you absolutely tank on the ones that never, ever change. Because I don't... It's because I know know it hasn't changed, I don't look at it closely enough. And so my Uh. brain works in a... I, I'm probably more memory based, and then I fail because I'm getting older. Hey, I'm not as old as Jeff. Jesus, <laughs> my memory's just fine. Um, what's your name? <laughs> <laughs> this is Tony Prelude Sync One. This is Ostron Prelude Sync Two. This is Lennon Plate Prelude Prelude Sync Three. Welcome back to Bristol's Fashions, the Spectrum's premier source for what's looking good in the galaxy. I'm Bro Hicks. I'm. I. No, I'm not. Blah.